0: We're in the last few weeks of a series on the Gospel of Mark called The Story That Changes Everything. There it is on the slide, The Story That Changes Everything, and it does, or it can do. Uh, This story can change you personally, can change everything about you from your character to the conduct of your life to your eternal future. It can also change us corporately. It can create communities of people called churches that are utterly unique in the world, And this story actually can can be even bigger than that. In one sense, it can change cultures. It has created civilizations. The story of Jesus can change everything, but if you are going to let someone change you, change your life, change your world, then you need to be confident, don't you, that they have the authority to do so. That they have the authority to do so. And... That's what the subject of this passage is today. It's about the authority of Jesus. The thing that made the most lasting impression on Jesus' followers was his authority. The thing that made the greatest, caused the greatest offence to those who opposed him was his authority. From the start of his ministry, he acted with the greatest of authority. In chapters 1 to 3 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus consistently demonstrated his authority over the physical world, over all kinds of sickness. He could heal anyone of any disease. He could calm a storm with a word. He had power over nature as well as over disease. He also had spiritual authority over the unseen world, the unclean spirit world. He could exorcise spirits or demons with a word again. He also had the greatest intellectual authority. He taught... As one who knew what he was talking about and unlike anyone else in the bible who speaks for god he did not say thus says the lord he said truly i say to you so you see even in that an implicit claim to authority and so all the way along through the story people have been asking where does this man get his authority and now as the story heads to a climax We're in the last week of Jesus' life. One-third of the book of Mark is taken up with one week of his life. Jesus now is in the most authoritative place in his culture, the Jerusalem temple, a massive, beautiful edifice. And he stands before a delegation of the most authoritative body in his culture, which was called the Sanhedrin. And they are asking a very serious question who gave you the right to do these things? Have a look with me at verse 27. Jesus is walking in the temple courts and the the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. Now these were three groups that made up the ruling council for the Jewish people. The chief priests were former priests and some priests who had permanent duties in the temple. The teachers of the law were learned scholars, legal experts. And the elders were senior laymen drawn from the wealthy aristocracy. These three groups together uh, made up a group of 71 men who were the ruling council for the whole of the people. And so this is not just another chat in the temple. This is an official delegation from the ruling council that has absolute religious authority and power and some political power in the country. So it is very ominous. And they come and they ask these questions. Please look again at verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? Now just imagine for a moment a, a huge roundabout in the middle of a major city. And there are cars coming in from all over the place and the, the signaling system has failed and people are driving here, there and everywhere and honking their horns and pranging each other. Maybe, maybe it's Rome. Okay, just imagine that scene. And all of a sudden in the midst of this chaos, a young man steps in in front of the traffic and he just takes charge. He stops some cars and he bids some others to come, and then he he stops them and brings others, and he just takes control of the situation, sorts it out, and creates order. And then, sometime later, the official police turn up, and they see this, this guy who hasn't got a uniform or anything, so they blow their whistles and take him to one side and say, hey, who gave you the authority to do this? We're the official police. Now, this is what's happening here. The religious establishment know that their power base is threatened by this young prophet from Galilee. So this now is a direct challenge to him in front of the crowds. Let's see your degree certificate. Let's see your accreditation. For which official body actually approved you to come in and do all this? And Jesus replies to them in his typical way, doesn't he? Look at verse 29. Uh, Quite a customary way, he replies with a question. Okay. I'll ask you one question, answer this, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Now, this might look like an evasion, but it's very clear from this point on in the story, Jesus is not trying to evade trouble or escape or be quiet and, and off the radar. From the triumphal entry to the temple onwards, he is engaging directly with the leadership. So what is he getting at here? Now, the way that Jesus works, his answer, tells us something about the nature of faith. Jesus often asks questions in the Bible, or he makes these mysterious statements to make us stop and think. He doesn't just hand the truth to us on a plate. We have to work for it. We have to inquire, search, study, and seek, and he promises we will find him. So every question Jesus asks is an invitation to get to know him better. To those who are serious about finding Jesus, he can be found. But to those who resist Jesus and resent him, the answers remain obscure because they're not really serious. And the same, you know, is true today. Many people who object to Christian faith have objections that are rational on the surface. But actually, underneath, their objections to faith are motivated by an emotional resistance to losing control. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then we're afraid of what might happen to us. Are you like that? Beneath the intellectual objections, which may be very well thought through, lie personal fears. In fact, no one can argue about faith in a completely unbiased way. No one is completely objective when it comes to faith, because it has too many personal implications for us. If you grant that Jesus is the Son of God, then your whole life has to change. How can you be unbiased when you evaluate such a question? Verse 30, here is the question that he asks. It's very simple, but it's actually quite brilliant. In fact, it's breathtaking as a piece of argumentation. John's baptism, was it from heaven, which means from God, or was it of human origin? Just tell me that. Now, why is this so brilliant? Because a few years before, John the Baptist had just risen up out of nowhere. He was an unschooled, untrained, unaccredited prophet, dressed in wild clothes, eating locusts and honey out in the wilderness, baptizing people in the River Jordan. And he had a national impact in calling people. Thousands of people went to him and and pledged that they would come back to God. Everyone knew it. In fact, the news of this had gone National, not just national, but but international. Everyone knew about it. And the tide of public opinion was such that the leaders here are backed into a corner. They can't come out against John. And Jesus is saying, I'm aligned with John the Baptist. So if his authority was from God, then you can see how mine is too, can't you? But you know, actually, Jesus is saying something even more profound here about himself. Remember what happened in chapter 1 when Jesus was baptized by John? It was the foundational moment of Jesus' entire ministry. He was baptized by John in the waters, and as he came up, the heavens, the sky, as it were, was ripped open, and a Spirit of God came down like a dove and rested on Jesus, and a voice spoke to Jesus from heaven, the voice of God the Father, and gave him divine approval. The voice said, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So you see, in this cryptic answer, Jesus is actually giving the leaders the clue to his identity. That was the answer to the question, where do you get your authority? Answer, I got it from God the Father when I was baptized by John. And the voice spoke from heaven. And the Spirit came down and empowered me for this ministry. And you see, all these things that I've been doing for these last three years have come from that moment. It was right there if they wanted to study the answer, but you know, they weren't seriously inquiring, were they? We knew that. So in verse 31 and 32, they sort of turn to each other, have a bit of a huddle, and they mutter amongst themselves. And it's a classic moment of political intrigue. You can almost see the cigar smoke rising from the middle of the group. What are we going to say to this? All the crowd are watching. Here these powerful men are weighing the moment, and then they use the dark arts of spin to get out of a hole. They realize that Jesus, if you'd excuse the phrase, has them over a barrel. If they say that, the, uh, Bap- that John the Baptist's ministry was from God and from heaven, then they have to acknowledge that Jesus too is legitimate. But if they say that John's thing was just from people, well, the crowd are going to go mad because John, they acknowledge, is a true prophet. So what do they say, verse 33? This is a classic cop-out, isn't it? We don't know. (laughs) It's such a disingenuous answer. It's a cop-out, a fudge. But you know, it's actually a terrible answer, because these are Israel's religious leaders. Of all people, they should have the answer, Where does John the Baptist's ministry come from? Well, we don't know. So it's a confession of spiritual bankruptcy. They don't know, and so Jesus will not entrust himself to them. There's a serious point here for us. You know, uh, Christianity has an intellectual dimension. You can spend many years studying the Bible and theology, and there are whole rooms full of treasure in there but we can let it become an intellectual exercise that that is always out here and never gets in here. At some point, we have to face up to the question, who is Jesus and did he really come from God and what does that mean for me? And I want to invite you to take that step, those who are still thinking this through, to take another step closer to Jesus today to acknowledge his authority. My second point and uh, David's going to bring that up on the slide, is about the sending of Jesus, sending of the Son. Because Jesus isn't trying, as I've said, not trying to duck out of a confrontation here and slip away. He's not hiding in the shadows. He's come to Jerusalem to die. He's clearly predicted it three times. And now he gives a fourth prediction. But this time he does it in the form of a story. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. St- a story. And in verse 12 of chapter 12, we see that they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. Everybody knows the meaning of this one. There's no secret here. There's no intrigue. He doesn't need to go into a house quietly with the disciples afterward and explain what it really meant. Everybody knows. It's about the religious leaders. Jesus is going public. So why does he tell a story? I think the reason is that a story like this tells the truth, but in emotionally powerful ways. It tells the truth, but in emotionally powerful ways. Many years before this incident, King David, the great uh, one of the great founding kings of the nation, had seen a beautiful woman. He'd been uh, lolling around on his palace rooftop. He hadn't gone off to war like all the other kings did. He was basically indulging himself. He called the woman to his... his his palace, he got her drunk, slept with her, she conceived, and from that act of adultery, a whole web of lies had been spun that resulted in a man, an innocent man, Uriah, losing his life, and David marrying the woman, and, and it all being covered up. And finally, a prophet of God called Nathan came to King David, To confront him in about this adultery but he didn't just confront him he told him a story it was like this once upon a time there were two men in a town one of them was rich and the other one was poor the rich man had loads of sheep and cattle and flocks and possessions but the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb he raised it he brought it up with his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. He even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And one day a traveler came to town and he was going to stay for dinner at the rich man's house, but the rich man didn't take one of his own sheep and cattle to feed the, the, the visitor. No, no. He sent for the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, killed it, and served it for dinner. Now at this, King David burned with anger Against the man in the story. And he said to Nathan, as surely as God lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. Because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You see the power of that? Telling a story, a convicting story, you can see the emotional power of the logic And that's what Jesus does here to the official leadership of the people. Verse 1, a vineyard is lovingly and carefully put together, dug out, uh, surrounded with walls, all the equipment's put in place, and then it's rented to some tenant farmers, which was common practice at that time. In verse 2, the deal is that the owner of the vineyard receives a share of the fruit. That's fair, isn't it? He gets rent. The tenants, tenant farmers, take a contract, And they will farm the vineyard, but they will give some of the produce to the landlord, the owner. They're tenants. But look at how they behave in verses 3 to 5. It is shocking. He sends a servant to the tenants to collect some some of the fruit. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. There's an escalation here in the way they treat the servants. The first one, they just rough him up a bit and kick him out of the vineyard. But the second one, they beat him on the head. Then it gets more intense. They actually kill one of the servants, and from this point on, they're totally hard-hearted. They will do anything. And then in verse 6, the story gets even more intense. Because By this stage, the owner has one left. And this one is his son. And it says here, the son whom he loved. So he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard In the ancient world, one of the most offensive things you could do was to leave a body unburied. That's why being killed on a cross is so shameful. Exposed after death. They kill him and throw his body out of the vineyard. And their reasoning is totally insane, isn't it? That somehow by killing the sun and the air, they're going to be able to take the inheritance. It just doesn't stack up. So it leads to this tragic outcome. And then in verse 9, We realize that the owner is powerful. He's not impotent after all. So what then, Jesus says, will the owner of the vineyard do? What is a natural outcome of this? Answer, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. They will be utterly destroyed. There will come a time when the owner says rightfully, enough. Time's up. Now, by verse 12, everyone knows that Jesus is telling the story against the leaders. He doesn't need to say, you are the men. It's that obvious. So the characters in the story are clear to everyone who hears, especially to those who know their Old Testament. The vineyard is a picture for the people of God, Israel. And it's a picture of God's relationship with his people, especially in the fifth chapter of Isaiah. And servants is a common way of referring to God's prophets. God sent prophets to speak to the people. They were called the servants of the Lord. And so this, too, is the way that the prophets had often been treated. Refused, rejected, ignored, persecuted, and sometimes killed. And the leaders know that. So then who is the son in verse 6? The one who is left... The one I love, Father. The, the owner says. Notice that language there of uniqueness, of love. And you know where we've heard the phrase, the son I love before, don't you? At Jesus' baptism and on the mountain where he was transfigured. So the son is Jesus. And the wicked tenants are the leaders of the, of the nation. They failed in their duty to lead the people, to be fruitful towards God. They've greedily tried to take the rights of God for themselves. They've turned the temple into a cash cow, a very cushy number. They live affluent lives, and soon they will kill the son himself. That's what it means, the authority of the son and the sending of the son. Okay, what does this mean for us? What does this mean to you and me? And what should it do to our lives on Monday morning when we're at the toddler group We're at school, the university lecture hall, the workplace, the office, the hospital. How should this teaching change us? What is the real-world cash value? Three points, three lessons from this story. Forbearance, folly, and fruit. Notice, firstly, forbearance, the patience of the owner. He's so patient and merciful to these tenants And we get to listen into his thought processes. He's carefully prepared this vineyard, but in return he's only reaped insults in the form of his battered servants and some of them have been murdered. So you have to ask, why on earth, in verse 6, does he send his son? You might even ask, who in their right mind would send their son? And that's one of the strange things about the parable. You wouldn't send your son, would you? Now that tells us something profound about the nature of God. Jesus is showing us here that God is patient and long-suffering. He is an unrequited lover who is so patient that he seeks his people. This is true all the way through the Bible, especially in a very poignant book called Hosea by one of the prophets who speaks about the relationship between God and his people as like a, a husband and a wife. And God says, therefore, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will give back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bales from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. God reaches out like a jilted lover who forgives again and again. God keeps pursuing human beings even when he is rejected. Such is his love and his patience towards us. God's forbearance. But secondly, the second thing we learn is about folly. How foolish we would be to presume upon the patience of God. How foolish we would be. But that is exactly what the farmers do in the story. And we get to listen in to their thinking as well. It's so vain. They think this, this crazy plan that they'll be able to kill the sun and somehow get to keep the, the property for themselves. How foolish, how insane They take no account of God. How could anybody live like that? How could anybody think like that? And yet, you know, we are just like them. You and I are just like them. Consider the foolish hearts of people in every generation who think they can seize control of everything in their lives and push God out of the picture. We're just like the tenants. I wonder, are you doing that in your life right now? You think you can try and seize control of everything and push God out of the picture. How's it working out for you? Did they really believe that by murdering the son they could inherit? It's crazy. But human beings do think that by erasing God from their lives, they can take control of their destiny. We're insane. In other words, the story reveals the folly Of our sinful attitude, our rebellion against God. Just imagine a single mum. She has one son. She loves him with all her heart. She's dotty about him. She's poor, so she works two jobs to provide for him. She works all day in a factory, and at night, she cleans offices. She washes his clothes and cooks his meals, listens to his problems, encourages him in all that he does. When he falls over, she picks him up. When he cries, she wipes away his tears. She's always there for him. She gives up her comfort for his. She gives up her life for his. And then he says he wants to go to university, so she takes another job to pay for the tuition fees. She pays and pays. And gives and gives. She's so proud when he finishes law school and he moves to the big city. And there's a photo of his graduation ceremony there on the sideboard with her standing at his side looking tired but happy. But what would you think of the son if he lived like this? He enjoys the life that his mother has given him and he lives it to the full. But instead of visiting or calling, he sends her a check every once in a while. He never phones, he never visits, he never writes, he never tells her, he loves her, he never asks how she is. He thinks he can pay her off with a bit of money now and then. What would you think of such a son? Is it right that the mother gave her life in return for a check every few weeks? Or does she deserve relationship? We all know the answer you're thinking, shame on him. And that is how we treat God instinctively. We think we can pay him off with the occasional good deed or going to church. And yet we deny him relationship. We love the life that he's given us. We enjoy so many good things in the world that he's made. But while we're enjoying the gifts, we ignore the giver. We snub him, the greatest one of all. And you know, we're actually worse than that. Because not only do we ignore God most of the time, but there are times when we become acutely aware of him. You know when that is? When life goes wrong. When life goes wrong, at that moment we turn on God angrily. And we demand that he come through for us. We lash out in rage how dare you treat me like this? Where are you? Maybe you don't exist. How could you be a God of love and allow suffering? All the while failing to realize that suffering may be the only way that God has to get through to us. His trumpet blast to waken a sleeping world. Such is our folly. And yet God is rich in mercy and he reaches out to us and those like us. Again and again, those who have spurned his love, he's patient. And our text reveals the lengths to which God will go in order to pursue you, to send his son, Jesus, into our world to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserved. And right at the end of this story, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. It was the same psalm that the people had been shouting when he came in, riding in on the back of a colt. And he pulls back the curtain of eternity just for a moment. And in verse 10, he says to them, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. The cornerstone was the most important stone in the whole building it had to be perfect it was a large stone and it was completely uh, a perfect rectangle the angles of that stone were such was so important that every plumb line that laid the rest of the building would be relying on the straightness of the cornerstone it's the foundation of everything Everything's built around the cornerstone. So if the builders find that it's not right or it's imperfect in some way, they will reject that cornerstone and throw it aside. We use broken up use for rubble. Interesting thing is there's another way of translating this word cornerstone. Some of you may have it in your Bible. It it can be translated as the capstone. And the capstone, if you imagine an old, uh, beautiful old cathedral with an an archway with stones going up, right at the top... At the top of the arch, there's an unusual shaped stone that that is the key to holding the whole thing together. And that one is the capstone. So which is Jesus? Is he the cornerstone, the foundation of everything? The one that everything's built on? Or is he the capstone, the one that is the chief, the crown of it all? Well, I think he's probably both. And Jesus is saying, quoting this psalm, the stone that the builders rejected, has become the chief stone, the foundation of everything. And God has done it. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now this here, we're getting into some of the deep theology of the the Bible. C.S. Lewis in his Narnia books calls it the deep magic. How is it that human beings could do their worst to Jesus Christ, reject him, make him suffer, cruelly kill him on a cross. How is it that human beings could do that and be fully responsible, and yet at the same time, it's all part of God's divine plan? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And yet that's how the Bible depicts this. There's a, there are two things running side by side, human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They're always there. They're always at play. They're always in tension, but they never quite meet. Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, preaching the first Christian sermon, talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. He says this, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. You See the two things at play? Or maybe more poetically, you remember the story of joseph with his amazing technicolor dream coat and how he was cruelly treated by his brothers and beaten and put in a well and sold to slavery and away for many years and eventually the brothers came they saw him again and they were cut to the heart and thought it was the end and joseph says this you intended to harm me but god intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives God is sovereign. Even in the most apparently ridiculous, tragic, failed episode of the Bible, the cross, God is achieving his greatest victory. Jesus was rejected, but it was God's plan all along. And he rose on the third day and reigns now. Can I ask, is there somebody here today who, who understands the gospel? You understand the good news now, but you have never bowed the knee to Jesus. You've never asked him to be Lord of your life. You've never trusted him. You never handed over the keys. Will you do it today? Don't play on his patience. His patience is immense, but it won't last forever. There comes a time where God says enough and it would be folly to test him. Forbearance, folly, and finally, fruit. Fruit. The third thing we learn is about the importance of fruit, and I don't mean you five a day, although they're important too. You know, Jesus' parables are a little bit like a boomerang. You know, I, actually, I have tried to throw a boomerang. It never did come back, but in theory, you throw a boomerang and it comes back and hits you on the head. It's a great uh, weapon invented by Australians, Uh, You know, these parables have a a way, we think they're they're true for someone over there, but actually they have this way of coming back and slapping us around the face. Especially those of us who know all the answers, and all this time you've been thinking, thinking, this parable's about someone else. You know, we are very prone to sit in in church, hear a sermon, and think, if only so-and-so could hear this. Don't forget what Nathan said to David. The punchline. You are the man. And you may be thinking, um, uh, this parable is aimed at religious leaders of Jewish people in Jesus' day. What does it have to do with me? Everything. Here's why Jesus' story teaches us that there is great danger if we don't change our ways. There is great danger if we don't change our ways. Eventually, the owner comes and destroys the tenants. Game over. More than that, there is great danger in religion. There's grave danger in religion. You're actually in quite a dangerous position now because you came here today. Did you know that? Going to church should have a health warning, like a pack of cigarettes. You are now in a more dangerous position than you were before you came to church. Why is that? Because religion can spoil you and make you worse. Because what we tend to do us flawed, failed human beings is think that because I went to church and because I served on a rota or I did this or that or I gave some money that, that I've pleased God now and that's enough. I'm just righteous enough to keep God at arm's length. He doesn't really need relationship from me. That is very dangerous. Look at the people who he was telling the parable to. They were the religious leaders of an entire nation. They knew their Bibles like the back of their hand. Oh, yeah, they went to the temple, practically lived in it. And yet they're the ones who are the furthest away from Jesus. They're in great danger. And we are too, if we will not go further than just religious observance. Let me ask you to press on through. God is a just judge. He's not fooled by appearances. So let's finish with this thought. If you are part of the vineyard, make sure to bear fruit. If you're part of the vineyard, make sure to bear fruit. What kind of fruit does Jesus expect from his followers? Chapter 11, verse 17, he says that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so our church should be a house of prayer for all nations. A a community that is gathered to pray to God, but not just for each other but for all nations, for those who are outside. That's why we talk and act on Sunday as if there are non-believing people present, because there are. We are not a church just for ourselves, Grace Church. Let's never do that. Let's not just come on Sunday and only talk to our friends. The nations are here, people who are outside of Jesus, and they're here with us looking in. They come in and out. Let's be here for them. We have opportunities. The Curry Mile is just on our doorstep. We have so many opportunities. The university is full of the nations. So many people in this city who don't know Jesus, who maybe couldn't even find out about him in their home country. Let's be a house of prayer for all nations. That's fruit. Jesus likes that kind of fruit. Secondly, a people who are a loving and forgiving community. Even when Jesus is teaching them about Prayer, in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, when you're praying and you remember your brother has something against you, go and settle it, go and sort it out. We're to be a community that is united in love who are forgiving. So I need to ask you, Christian friends, are you holding a grudge against someone else at the moment? Is there something in your life and heart or a relationship that you have not settled? You're not forgiving. You must put it right. That is fruit, that Jesus loves. Then in chapter 12 he talks again about another kind of fruit which is love. He says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Fruit is being a lover of God. And finally fruit is is loving our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, God expects the vineyard his people to be an accepting Prayerful, forgiving, devoted, and loving fellowship built on Jesus. And when it becomes something other than that, it risks God's judgment. Christian friend, are you bearing fruit at the moment? Are you bearing fruit? When John the Baptist was preaching and preparing the way for Jesus, he preached this message, Matthew 3 verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In keeping with repentance, a changed life. So, let me ask you some diagnostic questions as we close. Internal fruit, your heart, your character. Are you growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self control, all the fruit of the Spirit? Are you growing? Or are you as spiritually weak as you were last year? Are you more loving this year, more self-controlled, more peaceful than you were last year? Ask yourself. And what about external fruit? Are you having more impact on the people around you for Jesus? Are more people growing because of you, being touched by the love of God through you? Have a good look this week and see what fruit you're producing and maybe ask someone who knows you, someone who you can trust, to answer that question with you. Grace Church, Manchester, let's take our responsibilities in the vineyard seriously and let's bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's pray.